Hello and welcome to the VentureForth Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Mahavutivani. We'll be chatting with some of the most interesting founders, startups, and VCs about the experiences that led them to where they are today, what they're currently working on, as well as the journey ahead of them. On today's show, we venture forth with Ian McHenry, co-founder and CEO of Beyond Pricing, an essential revenue management and dynamic pricing product for the short-term and vacation rental owners who list on sites like Airbnb and VRBO. As a social leverage portfolio company, I've known Ian for about a year and a half now, and he is quite possibly the most interesting founder in the world. His background includes investment banking, consulting, solving rural poverty in Africa, sailing throughout Southeast Asia, and even a bit of winemaking. I seem to learn something new about him every time we reconnect, and so I'm really excited to welcome him to the show and learn something new. I forgot to bring you a bottle of wine. I'm sorry. <laughs> I knew that was the whole purpose of this. Anyway, thank you, Jack. Uh, really great to be on your show. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, wow. That's a broad question. Uh, I think you covered most of it, you know, uh, man of many talents. Now, uh, like I said, I run Beyond Pricing, and we're software for vacation rental and Airbnb hosts, um, help them dynamically price. Do you want the whole story? Oh, absolutely. Oh, I think it's most interesting. Grew up in a small town called Claremont, California, uh, in Southern California. It's a big college town. Went to public school there. Uh, I was a runner. Then, for some reason, decided to go out east and go to Princeton because it was the most unexpected and opposite thing I thought I could do versus public school in L.A. And went out there, studied politics, um, ran a business actually on campus. I don't think you had that one. I called the, the newspaper delivery agency, which did a quarter mil of revenue and ran us a nice profit uh, there, which was my first like real revenue, I guess, entrepreneurial endeavor, unless you count selling baseball cards and lemonade. And then, like you said, after college, I was a, I did what a good Princeton man does, became an investment banker, and then did the other thing that Princeton people do and became a management consultant, ran out of those types of things, and eventually started Beyond Pricing All right. three years ago now. So from the typical Princeton to iBanking consulting life yep. to life on the open ocean. <laughs> Sailing. Yeah. So luckily, as an investment banker in 2006, you make a little bit of money, saved it up. And at some point, uh, me and my best friend were talking. We were actually in London. He had gone to uh, work for a private equity firm there. I was doing something very similar in Kenya, working with rural poor people, farmers there, with a group called One Acre Fund, which is an amazing group. If you're ever to donate money to charity, donate it to One Acre Fund. It's the most bang for your buck that you get. It's this awesome program that helps rural farmers, which are the majority of folks in, in Kenya and in a lot of Africa, gives them not just uh, microfinance for, for seed and fertilizer, but also the training and the delivery of that that they need. Um, once you actually get into the economics of somebody there, you see how important distribution is. Also for startups, distribution is very important. And you could instantly, in a year with improved inputs and training, get people to, to triple their yield and pay back with interest the loan and still double their income. And, and there, where you're living on the margins, like you're literally, these are the dollar a day type bottom of the pyramid people. You know, as soon as you double your income, you suddenly can open up to all these types of things, pay for school, do all the things that you need to do to rise up out of poverty. So in one single year, you can do that. And so that was really cool. But when I was there, I was, I was on my way back home uh, for vacation and stopped in London. 
And yeah, you know, we had traveled a lot around the world together, and, and I had read this, uh, and we were getting a little bit jaded by it. It's like, yeah, you go here, you see all the things, oh, Inger Watt, that's cool, yeah, Eiffel Tower, that's cool. And we really wanted to experience stuff in a different way. I was like, what should we do for our next trip? And I just read James Michener's uh, South Seas, I think it is, about going to you know all these different places. And then, who was it, Bill Bryson or somebody wrote another one about kayaking around the South Pacific. And I was like, I want to go to the tiny islands sailed to them and no sailing experience whatsoever and so we were like yes let's do that taught uh, we took a class on the to be crew and then decided to quit our jobs and and go and and sails you know starting around southeast asia which was a harrowing experience um we really kind of taught us that we bought some crappy boat <laughs> which actually if any entrepreneurs want to take a year off and don't have other commitments here. It's actually a good investment in San Francisco. A boat, uh, you can get this, like a Beneteau boat. Uh, for most people, obviously, we're privileged and that had enough to buy a $70,000 boat. But you buy it and then you live on it for a year and then you sell it and you sell it for maybe like 10 grand less max. And 10 grand for a year for two people is, uh, is great for rent. <laughs> it's a lot cheaper than living in San Francisco. All right, I was sailing, came back. Oh, oh I, actually, beyond becoming an entrepreneur came out of that a little bit. Um, I came back, wanted to go get a real job. And once you've been an investment maker and a management consultant, like you get all your jobs through headhunters. In San Francisco, what, I'm sure engineers probably have this. Probably uh, every day. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I get the inbounds from them, from their, from the headhunters. But like, I didn't know how to actually get a job. Like, headhunter and be like, hey, here's three places, uh, pick one. So I did that and did corporate development for some Silver Lake portfolio company called Mercury Payments. And I lasted like six months. And I just couldn't go back to it. I just couldn't deal with corporate life. And so I left, came back to San Francisco, taught myself to code and built a, a crummy website uh, by myself that couldn't scale past three concurrent users without getting really, really slow, <laughs> and, uh, and, that, and called Wetter Feet, uh, which is now defunct. And, and that was kind of my first thing. So first time was a, a total loss. Uh, the this, this second one, thanks in part to social leverage and their funding of us, has been a little bit better. How'd you come up with this idea of dynamic pricing? Well, I didn't come with it. That's been around forever. Um, but for vacation rentals, so I used to do this with uh, airlines and hotels back in the management consulting days. So knew the industry, focused purely on revenue management when I was at Oliver One, and we'd go into these big airlines and help them do that. We looked at vacation rentals at the time back in 2013, and you could see that like they're very inefficiently priced. They would you know, have maybe a high season and a low season and maybe a weekend price, and that was it. Um, that's really actually like what hotels looked like 20 years ago. Many independent hotels still are that way. Um, like you literally go on the website and it shows you the price. Like imagine uh, for an individual day, like imagine that with like the Hilton. And so there's a ton of opportunity there. And we looked at it and we're like, wow, you can, there's huge amounts of inefficiency. And when we tested it and did it with owners that were, at the time we were actually managing their properties, so we were doing the cleaning and all this other stuff too, but our key was our pricing algorithm, and we were seeing 40% increases in revenue, which is incredible. Like It's a hugely inefficient market if you can easily get that 40% bump. When I did this for like airlines, if we got a 5% bump, we would make their earnings report uh, if we got them that, and so it's incredibly inefficient. So saw that opportunity and and saw that that was, that was really uh, the hard part in the industry and that it was a huge growing industry. It's now like 20% of all accommodations and there were precedents for software like this in hotels. And so I said, hey, let's bring it to vacation rentals. So it so, was a nice strategy. <laughs> definitely. So Beyond Pricing is then sort of a spinoff of the original project. Yep. 
Sort sort of like Instagram pivot. or Flickr. Oh, this is a startup show. A pivot. <laughs> a pivot. Yeah. Because you saw that, I guess, a, an opportunity or you saw a lot of people taking advantage of that. Yeah. I mean, we also saw that just managing rentals was kind of a commodity. If you wanted to start a Airbnb management company in San Francisco, you could do it yourself right now. Go and find somebody with an Airbnb. Say, hey, I want to. I will manage your profile. You do it now. Now I will do it. And let me call a cleaner. It can be just anybody. It could be handy. It could be whoever. And they'll come and clean your place. Like you could do it today. Thousands of people can do this. If you look at real estate, like property managers, or it's just a normal business. There's no barriers to entry. All these types of things. And so we saw that very quickly, and we thought, wow, if we really want to become this like global company, you know, we're going to have a ton of competition, and like everyone's just going to erode our commission on that. And we're seeing that now in the space. Like since when we launched, we were very early uh, in San Francisco. Now there are these Airbnb-focused property managers in hundreds and hundreds of cities all around the world, and each city has at least a dozen of them, and most of them used to be on pricing. So now I'm using Beyond Pricing, I can make up to an extra 40%. How does it work? Yeah, it's super simple from a from a user perspective. So all you do is you go to beyondpricing.com, create an account. You can actually link instantly your Airbnb or VRBO, put in your credentials, it pulls in all your listing information, and uh, you can instantly see a full year of prices. Um, on the back end, there's sophisticated algorithms figuring out all these fluctuations in demand, unique characteristics about your listing, all these other types of, of fancy things. But for you as a user, you just see all these optimized prices and you actually see the reasons behind them. It's a high season or low season. It's a major event. We actually tell you the name of the event in most cases. It's last minute, whatever these things are. So you say, okay, awesome. Uh, I see that you're doubling prices for Dreamforce here in San Francisco. And then you just click sync and it goes right into to Airbnb or VRBO and updates every single day automatically and you can just sit back and relax. And so we actually pioneered that. Now Airbnb has launched a, a similar tool for its users, um, uh, borrowing a lot of characteristics, uh, including like the uh, showing like why prices are going up. Like one of our early findings was, you know, people don't just believe you because you're smart and, you know, in some fancy school or used to do this for other people, like they don't even know that when they sign on. Uh, and so you really kind of have to get buy-in on the product um, anytime you're saying, hey, you should do this, um, which is a big learning. And that's been adopted by others. Um, but so super simple to use for users. Like anyone listening right now, if you have an Airbnb, you can go ahead and just do it today. And that's actually revolutionary in this space. Like uh, a hotel revenue management tool will take weeks to implement. You know, it, it's the typical like, disruption where you can go in and replace a legacy enterprise system that used to take all this hand-holding and time to implement and just be able to sign up and start going immediately. And what we did since then for large property managers, say like Tim and Jane's property management in Lake Tahoe, um, you know, that you might rent a cabin from, who have hundreds of properties, they have these legacy systems. And we've created an interface so that it's super simple even for them to link to us and get all of our prices pushing in there. Um, and that's what we've concentrated a lot on. So I used to be an Airbnb host and the, uh, used their own pricing tool. And the thing that really frustrated me was that sometimes it would suggest prices that I thought were too low for my apartment in San Francisco. Sure. And then I would price it higher and I would have no problem getting bookings. Why can't Airbnb do what you are doing? Well, because we have me. Uh, <laughs> it's all about me. Um, I've learned from, from our, our president-elect that you got to take credit for everything. <laughs> you know, it, there's a couple, you know, I don't, I don't like to speak poorly of that, but I mean, you, 
you recognize that and, and others have sort of seen that and there's a couple theories around it and you know one is you know that that we only have the host in mind right we only have the owner in mind and so we're only trying to increase your revenue for Airbnb they have the host and the guest in mind and they want to expand their market share in the whole accommodation space right now that's dominated by hotels Airbnb wants to get there and similar to how Uber and Lyft kind of, you know, beat out taxis. It did in two ways. One, I mean, taxis were right for disruption, but, you know, one was making it easier to hail a cab or hail a vehicle. And the second one was they made it cheaper, right? You know, Airbnb can get to, to 10x their size by making things cheaper. And so by suggesting prices that are lower than you can actually get, that should, in the long term, help them go from 1% to 10%, rather than optimizing that 1%. If you, get, if you optimize that by 40%, you go from 1% to 1.4%. If you underprice and expand the market for you as Airbnb, you go from 1 to 10. So there's that bit there. Um, but it is actually funny. They uh, uh, Last thing I'll say about Airbnb, but we, we uh, a lot of our users, and we have you know tens of thousands of users. We've looked at the data, which have more users than Airbnb does uh, using our, our pricing. Uh, we had a, a lady from San Diego send me, one of our early users, send me this report from Airbnb that said, hey, on January 21st, uh, you missed a booking. Somebody looked at your view, uh, looked at your place, and booked it for another place for $112 less. And on February 21st, somebody looked at your place and booked another one for $166 less. So then I was like, oh, huh, interesting. I wonder, are we over, overpricing you? And Mark looked at, I'm always curious. I always want to make sure everything's working. Looked at her, her listing and, huh. Happened that she just got a booking for February 21st at full price. So she would have lost $166 per night, which would pay for three months of using Beyond Pricing. Right. Um, and, and it really doesn't matter that something seems overpriced. Really, you just need someone to book it. Yeah, right? I mean, absolutely. One person. Yeah, and, you know, it's uh, we always say this, you know, if you were to go book something for a year from now, you'd see every single listing out there. And within that, there's people that are underpriced and overpriced. Right and or optimize you know optimizing the pricing and optimize and so what are you going to do if somebody like put their place for a hundred bucks a night during Dreamforce do you think they're going to go book the one that's you know four hundred dollars first no they're going to book that hundred up and then they're going to book the one that's one hundred ten and then the one that's one hundred twenty and then you know a it's month out when they need a spot what's going to be left all right. that's gone that four hundred dollar place and that's probably the guy that was using beyond pricing. Okay, so yeah, very similar to the airline industry or the hotel industry then. Yeah. So products and services in, this, in the travel industry seems really, really crowded. How do you approach growth and breaking through the noise? Yeah, so the crowding in travel often happens on the consumer side. So you avoid that by going in a niche and doing going B2B. Um, I, I, you know, I, I'm in touch with a lot of the, the travel startup space um, it's really hard to build a consumer brand and, and a consumer product there. And the two places where people have focused primarily has been on discovery, like figuring out you know where I want to, to go and planning and stuff, and then also on being a booking site. On the booking side, like it's it's hard to compete with Expedia, Booking.com, and Airbnb. Like Hipmunk was probably the best effort at that, and they had to fold. Uh, oh, I mean they sold. Sorry. Apologies to all the hip-hop friends. Um, you know, they sold to Concur, but I know, you know, they wanted to be the next Kayak. They wanted to be the next Expedia, right? It's very, very difficult on that consumer side to do that. So if you're going to do consumer, figure out the right niche and the right value proposition that's so different that it's going to, you know, everyone's going to use you. Hotel Tonight's a good example, right? Like Sam there brought something that didn't exist before at all, and it was revolutionary. 
The defensibility has been tough, but I think he's actually cutting it there and everything's going really, really well for them. So that's like a great success story. But that was very distinct. It wasn't just like, hey, you know, Hipmunk was able to say, hey, they have a better user interface. Absolutely, right? Um, and I think the trap everyone falls into is, hey, look at VRBO. God, their user interface is so terrible, right? Well, guess what? Well, Expedia bought them, and now it kind of looks like Expedia. And homeway.com, yeah, they fixed that. It wasn't, it's not hard to fix a user interface, right? There has to be something else that's wrong with something uh, if you're really going to attack that. And so that's where it really gets crowded. We looked at it, and we saw, hey, there's this thing that's not that sexy. It's pricing. B2B, you know, you're a business as an Airbnb host. And it really is kind of the pipes rather than that that sort of front end. And so try to look at that. And the second part is talk to people in the travel industry. They've seen it all. They know it all. You know, some people have ingrained ideas, um, but a lot of them really actually have seen lots of things tried and lots of things failed. And they can they can really give you insight into why those have failed in the past. That makes so sense. if you don't come from travel... Find someone that has, has been there. And I've benefited greatly from a lot of mentors from, you know, who are early days at Expedia or Travel Zoo or Travel Click or any of these, Saber, all of these guys that have been in the industry for 30 years. So you guys have now tens of thousands of users. Yep. Can you talk about how much in bookings you expect for 2017 or even how much you've done? Yeah, so we've done, we're now approaching $200 million worth of bookings priced by our platform, which is great. Uh, we'll see. We're hoping to triple next year. So that's always the goal. But yeah, I mean, really our goal is in every market to, to get a, an increasing percentage of the market using us. I and mean, we've already seen that in, in Japan randomly. We were very, we're, we're quote big in Japan, uh, but we were there very early and the market, um, we got into the market very early and the market grew very quickly as Airbnb's fastest growing market. And so there, you know, we're already moving the market, like the average prices there follow our curve. Um, which is pretty cool. And the goal is to have that happen in all the other 400 top markets in the next two years. And are they discovering you in places like Japan directly through search or direct sales? Oh, man, user acquisition. Um, so we were early. Uh, we got tons of press. Like, you know, you read any of these, like, growth blogs. Like, if you follow Andrew Chen actually has this great growth blog from early on, and I've followed that for, for a lot of the period, which is you have early growth, right? And that's just hustle, right? That's That's, like blogs, you do the blogs, you get SEO, you master all your keywords, like you test Facebook ads, you test SEM, you do all these types of things, uh, and you just create awareness about you. And then and then all of those people feed your website, and then they start using it. What's especially hard with us is it's a brand new category. Like, people searching for uh, how to price my Airbnb, <laughs> nobody's searching that. Like, three years ago, nobody was really searching that. Uh, now, actually, Airbnb launching their own helped. Like we saw when they launched it, you can look at the Google Trends. It, it bumped a little bit. But you can instantly see, is SEO a good strategy by seeing what are your search terms, how much competition is there for it, and is there a lot of volume? And for us, there's like no volume. So when you have a brand new product, it gets a lot harder. Um, and then you need to find, like, who are the evangelizers in the space? And really, like, we've found that we are the evangelizers. Like, people come to us not just for pricing advice, but for advice on hey, you know, what property manager should I use for my, how should I improve my listing description? How to, should I do all these sorts of things? And so that was really, really tough for us. Now that we've gotten traction and we've really found our key market, it's not actually these individual Airbnb hosts. It is these property managers. They control about half of all the inventory in the world. You know, everyone thinks of vacation rentals and they think, you know, Airbnb, but right. really uh, the majority of it is on Booking.com and on VRBO, especially in terms of bookings. 
uh, and volume because all of those 2.8 million that Airbnb has, well, 40% of them have zero reviews and the rest of them only have a few reviews because it's people when they go away for the weekend uh, or for a month, they put it on. Whereas right. vacation rentals in markets like Tahoe, Destin, Florida, all these types of Ch- Chamonix, you know, uh, Ibiza, all these places, they've been doing this for decades. It's actually a much bigger market. And they are all run by property managers. And so they're big enough that we can do direct sales to them. Interesting. So besides Airbnb and VRBO, what other platforms does Beyond Pricing work for? Yeah. I mean, so uh, we actually work with every single platform indirectly. So uh, just like with hotels, most hotels will have a some property management software. It's like a point of sale system, right? Or uh, if you're a, a e- you know e-commerce person, like you'll have your uh, Shopify or whatever is your central system where you keep all your inventory. And then that'll distribute out to Amazon, to eBay, to your Etsy store, whatever it is. Same thing with hotels. They have a property management system. And then that distributes out to Expedia, to the local travel agent, to everywhere. Vacation rental managers have the same thing. And we link into the largest ones there. So via them, we're on you know, TripAdvisorBooking.com or go to every single possible one. And we can connect to all of those, everybody out there. We have built some direct connections for individuals between Airbnb, HomeAway, uh, and VRBO, which is you know the same essentially now, uh, and those are the two largest. And we just launched. We've launched. We've had HomeAway for a while, but we now just are kind of publicly launching that and recommending for all of our Airbnb hosts that are serious to be on multiple channels. Just. For security, it's it's like someone that relies on SEO. You worry that Google's going to change its algorithm and ruin your business. Same with if Airbnb changes its algorithm. But see so yeah, how Airbnb, VRBO, and we're launching TripAdvisor and Booking.com in the next month. Beyond Pricing is a venture-funded startup. Yeah. Can you talk about how much you've raised to date and what metrics investors find most important with a business like this? Oh, you tell me. You guys invested in us. Ah, we raised, uh, so we raised 1.5 mil. We raised a $1.5 million seed round, which... You know, if your audience is upcomers or looking to raise money, uh, all of that, well, two things on that. One, when people announce it, they could have gotten the funding like a year ago. Uh, two, they just lumped together everything that came since the last time they announced something. So a $1.5 million seed round, when someone announces that means maybe they got a pre-seed of 300000 and then they got another thing of two hundred, and then they got a million, and now they're going to glom it all together and call it a seed. So uh, we raised $1.5 million. You know, and, and you know better, Joe. Like you talk to startups every single day that are that are early, and it's changing too, right? Like what you need for a seed round is totally different. Like you can get a pre, even with a pre-seed now, and you know, often that's like the first people come to me and I just say, "You have nothing." Well, if you haven't done this before, like just get three hundred thousand dollars, get it now, build something, and six months later, like you'll have the the traction that you need to raise proper seed, right? And so once you've done that, like that traction is, are people using it? Are they re-engaging? And it's different for every single sector. And those metrics are, you know, it's just, are people using this, right? right. There's all this stuff like market size. Like people will, and we've, as with every entrepreneur, you get more rejections than you do acceptances. Uh, and, you know, all of our objections have always been, oh, I don't think the market's big enough. Or like, oh, that's a $100 billion market. Like, ah, but Airbnb owns it. Well, actually, they're actually a fairly small section of it. You know, all these types of things that you need to power through. But really, you need to be attacking something that can be a $200 million revenue business. That, I always look at that. Like, if you look look at all the IPOs and see when people IPO'd, what was their revenue? And that's what venture investors want to invest in, something that could IPO. So figure that out and figure out how you get to $200 million annual revenue. 
So when Airbnb first launched, there seemed to be a huge gold rush opportunity. People were buying up you yep. know, uh, houses or multi-unit and turning them into full-time Airbnbs. Is there still an opportunity to build businesses like that in the short-term rental industry? Is still that gold rush? No. Gold rush is over. <laughs> I mean, honestly, like uh, every arbitrage opportunity is very quickly snapped up. Right? There's enough people trying to take advantage of that. Airbnb, like... Great opportunity before, right? There's this huge delta between long-term rates and short-term rates. It's gone in San Francisco. And and the two are related. Like uh, here, because so many people are moving here for tech jobs and for all this other sort of stuff, like your monthly rent now on a one-bedroom is approaching $4,000, right? For a vacation rental, the average one-bedroom revenue, again, there's low season and high season. Like you got to remember that. Like right now is not so great in San Francisco. Uh, It's even worse in Chicago. You know, the... The monthly revenue might be forty five hundred dollars, but then you got to pay cleaners and you got to do all the management and all right. that. So arbitrage opportunity is really gone in San Francisco unless you're doing it illegally. Well, a you can't do it all the time, but if you're doing it illegally and you get you still have that thousand dollar a month rent and behind the property manager's back, you're like renting it on Airbnb. Yeah, sure, there's illegal arbitrage opportunities, but then in other places like where it's still mostly legal, like in Japan, we saw this right, which was. There was this huge delta when things were going for, one bedroom was going for $150 a night in Osaka or in Tokyo, but then the inventory tripled. Like, everyone was like, wow, I can make so much money. They all turned their homes into vacation rentals, and then it got flooded with supply, and then that went down to 70 bucks, and suddenly, at half the price, you might as well rent it out long term. And right. so then the arbitrage opportunity is gone. And then it's really, then you get back to, you know, traditional, uh, then it's just static, like... The, the cap rates on those real estate investments are, are just more normal, right? Right. And that happens in most with most opportunities. Yeah. I do remember the time when, you know, everybody suddenly became you know, a, a, an Airbnb property manager okay. and were buying up whatever they can get their hands on. And so it's interesting to see how now the supply and demand curve is starting to, to normalize. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it's, that happens very frequently. So what's uh, 2017? Uh, what's new in 2017 for Beyond Pricing? Oh, man. I uh, can't reveal all of it. Um, I mean, lots of cool stuff that we're testing. You know, the nice thing is we're continuing to expand. We want to triple this year. Um, like I said, we want to try to, to get significant density in the top 400 markets, um, add more partners, add all of that sort of stuff. And so there's always those kinds of product improvements and growth of the core business. Um, and that really is the focus here, you know, for any other startups out there. Like when you're in that series A range, like you're, you're not trying, you're trying not to launch, you've hopefully figured out what your core product is and you're trying to get it to everybody, right? That's the phase that we're at. We have something that works. We have lots of tractions. We have, I mean, everyone uh, debates when product market fit is, but we have a, you know, we have some product market fit, like let's get everyone using this. And I think one mistake a lot of people make is, great, like people are starting to use this, like what else can we make, you know, and they stop there rather than doing the hard work of selling this crap to everybody, right? Like people don't just come and instant, I'm Slack maybe, but even Slack probably is like, cool, we got all these early adopters, now how do we get ourselves into Oracle using Slack and like all these huge companies, right? And and they'll continue to focus on that. But there should be some interesting co- things coming out too that'll be slightly sexier now that we have a little bit of funding we can you know we can create a, some interesting stuff on the side definitely so i'd like to transition into our quick fire round now okay uh, and that will be capped <laughs> off by an opportunity to plug anything that you like so to kick things off what is your favorite book 
Um, favorite book. Uh, my mother-in-law knows that I don't read books. Um, she's a journalist and a journalism professor at Santa Clara. Uh, the joke in the family is that I don't read books because I listen only to audio books now. <laughs> you know, my favorite book is probably, I mean, it's dumb to say, but, uh, you know, that James Mich- Michener's book about the South Seas was just like, it's an odd one, right? It's a mix of fiction and fact. Um, but it just had this sense of adventure in it. There's also this other one by Richard Halliburton that is, I'm totally blanking the name on, which is really pitiful. My wife will tell you I have the worst memory in the world. But uh, he was actually a Princeton guy, and he sold all of his furniture at Princeton and then just went to go travel the world like back in the 30s and that. So if you see a theme here, a lot of it is very travel-related. Actually, speaking of travel, you've been probably all over the world, and you were a travel aficionado. So where where has been the most memorable travel destination for you? Andaman Islands of India. Don't go, because then I'll get ruined. So there are these islands that are halfway between India and Thailand out in the middle of the Indian Ocean, the Bengal, I guess. And they're just wild. There's like one of the last places where there's still cannibals, actually. Oh you're not God. allowed to go to the southern Andaman Islands. We sailed out there, four-day sail from Thailand, and it's just untouched. It's incredible. It has some very secret surf breaks. Uh, it has some of the best coral you've seen in your life. There's a huge volcano called Barren Island that is just 50 miles off the shore, nobody round. You go there and like dive right off of it while it's st- it's like active and exploding, you know, pushing out smoke and all this oh, wow. sort of stuff. It is an insane place. That's amazing. But uh, go now; it'll be ruined in a few years. One <laughs> <laughs> of your your nose rider projects, which was the company prior to Beyond Pricing or Beyond Stays, I believe, was Essential Man Skills. <laughs> Tell me, what is your most essential man skill? Oh, what is my most essential man skill? Well, to give context to it, um, there. Uh, this is actually prompted by the, an ex-girlfriend now, uh, I'm married, but uh, she, you know, I we have, you mentioned this, We, my grandpa was actually the first chancellor at UC Santa Cruz, um, and at the time he bought, like, he grew up, you know, he went to UCLA, but he grew up on a farm in Lompoc, he's like a farmer, his family were farmers, and so... I started UC Santa Cruz, he like bought this, sorry, this is not very quick, but he bought 40 acres up in Santa Cruz Mountains, uh, and he wanted to farm something, he ended up farming Pinot Noir grapes, which is where the winery comes from, and all this other sort of stuff, but anyway, so like I go up there, and like, I do things that are normal to me from, from childhood, like chop wood, and like start fires, and you know, and you know, like I fix my car for basic types of things, and uh, my, my girlfriend at the time was like, Darn San, you know, San Francisco, nobody's able to actually, you know, all these guys, they don't know how to do anything. They know how to code. They don't know how to actually do anything. He's like, you should, and this is why I was trying to figure out my next business. I was like, you should just, you know, like teach classes on like these core essential things that you just need to know. And uh, so that's what this essential man skills came from. Now, we, this never became anything. We were going to launch something called essential woman skills. It was going to be exactly the same stuff because they're kind of life skills. And they were things like, how to acquire food, how to start a fire, how to fix a car, how to do sorts of things like that. So most essential, uh, start a fire. How's start that? Fire. That's you can't start a fire. If you go camping somewhere and like you can't start a fire, come on, well, without well, lighter fluid. Well, one of my guilty pleasures is, is Survivor, so right. that's a, an essential skill that, as it turns out, a lot of those people don't have. Yeah, and it's yeah. cost them the game. Yeah, fire time. Well, there you don't even get a match. But, um, you know, it, it, it's funny, like... Going back to that, like, my whole family has been academics, and one thing they always liked about 
grandpa's property in, in Santa Cruz was like, and all of them in, in general was like, they live their day as a life of the mind and you're just, you know, reading or writing or doing all this all day. And like, you want to do something, you know, with your hands right. at the end of the day. Absolutely. Right. It's kind of a luxury for us that are all these like technology workers or whatnot. Um, and, and that was like a lot of what was kind of part of that is like, like, I think there's a need and everyone wants to be able to actually do something and make something with their hands, not just, you know, not just on a computer. Yeah, I hear that a lot from people who work in the Bay Area or in startups and, and get burnt out and really want to do something with their hands. And so, you know, whether it's a foundry or whether it's a, you know, an opportunity to just build a box or yeah. uh, you know, go kayak do, do, or, or, or just make, um, you know, build a house in Mexico. <laughs> you know, these are things that I think can be a, a nice departure from life here, which is, you know, you know, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners know, is extremely fast paced. And, you know, you're always trying to out hustle your, your competitors. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like, so that we just bought, I finally just bought a house that's definite fixer upper, uh, but there's like a shed in the back. I'm not allowed to touch the house because, like, my carpentry isn't so good, but the shed is mine, and so I can lay drywall in there and totally mess it up, and it's just, like, this amazing, like, playground for me. So what do you collect, if anything, and why? I used to collect baseball cards and then comic books. Thought I was going to make millions of dollars off that. That didn't pan out. Other than that, I, I, like, I try to be a minimalist. Like, I try to have as little things as possible. I purge my closet as... Very frequently. But what do I actually collect besides rock climbing gear um, that uh, my wife will say I have too much of? Travel books. Awesome. I, never, I never throw away, like, you, you know, you go, you get the Lonely Planet, and I never, I never throw those away. So if you need any, just come by my house. So we've learned about your favorite place to travel, uh, or the yep. most memorable. How about the least? Where would you never go back to? <laughs> oh, everywhere is interesting. Um Maybe most overrated. Oh, everywhere's great. I don't go to bad places. Oh, ah, okay. I shouldn't hate on this. Um, Singapore. So Singapore is, uh, it's very, uh, it's not as interesting as a couple of the other cities around it. Um, we had a friend who was like, we got this great deal over New Year's to fly to Singapore. We're going to be there for three days. We're going to take the direct flight from SFO. So let's go to Singapore. And I was like, no way. I'm not going back to Singapore. <laughs> so uh, this is my last question on the on the travel thread, but I think it's interesting because you you like travel, you like deals. What's been and I, I love these things too. I, I will buy any cheap flight just because once I get there, I can you know use that money to do really cool stuff. Yep. Uh, what's the best deal you've ever scored? Oh, best deal I've ever scored. I've gotten, you know, the $200 WOW flight to... Oh, like travel Yeah, uh, travel deals. Oh, yeah. Uh, so my dad and I have this tradition. He's, like, the ultimate traveler. I, I blame him for everything. Anytime, <laughs> like, they get upset about where I'm going and they know that my, like, philosophy is try to go somewhere where the UN, like, still is kind of there. Like, I went to Timor-Leste, you know, East Timor after it separated from there. And, like, they still had... The UN was still there to make sure everything was okay. Uh, so they know that that's my knack for travel, um, which frightens my parents but i always say well, dad did it like when he was a kid when he graduated from college he worked in africa and then he to get home he went overland all the way to like through japan like through iraq and through afghanistan wow. and that, it was a different time yeah. then um so i always blame him but every year he's now 77 i try to go somewhere on his bucket list and last year we went to burma which we were a couple of years late burma's turning into thailand very quickly um, like I said, should have gone there while it was still a little 
you know, less democratic. Um, <laughs> but the flight, uh, I went to book it. It was round trip to all the way into to Yangon uh, from SFO for 500 bucks. Wow, killer. And I think that was 109. It was on China Eastern, I think. I've flown Chinese. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it gets you there. And I think it was a $197 ticket, and the rest was taxes. Oh, oh wow. Oh, yeah. I mean, the international taxes just kill you on this. That's amazing. Yeah. I, I, de- I definitely want to go well, to Burma. I'll, I'll do a plug. So you said plugs. I got yes, plugs now, Yes, this right? is your plugs. Okay. I, I don't like plugging us. Go, go to Beyond Pricing if you're an Airbnb host. Tell all your friends about it, yada, yada, yada. Uh, I think I got that on Hitlist. So my friend Jillian, now I'll call her friend, uh, runs this company called Hitlist, which is an app where you can, uh, and they also have a Chrome tab called Wander tab that shows you rates for every single flight from your, you know, like where you are, like SFO, and where you can go and how cheap it is. It's oh. a great way if you have, you know, discretionary time or discretion, or you just want to like plan your vacation around cheap flights, Hitless is the place to go. It's really, really cool. Check it out. Uh, and that's, I think, actually where I got the $500 ticket to, to Myanmar. Awesome. And so before, I'd, l- I'd love to hear about, uh, you know, have you plug one other thing, uh, which is something I've been trying to get my hands on for a while. Uh, which is, where can one buy the latest vintage of McHenry Pinot Noir? Like I said, I meant to bring it. Um, go to Santa Cruz. <laughs> oh, here you go. Here's a plug. Uh, January 21st, you got to get this out before then, yep. uh, is the Passport Weekend for the Santa Cruz Mountains. So for those of you that don't know, there's like 45 wineries in the Santa Cruz Mountains, and they make amazing, on, one, on the ocean side, they make amazing Pinot Noir, uh, which is what we do, and Chardonnay. Uh, and on the other side, on the you know Los Gatos, that side... Uh, they make great Cabernet because it's warmer on that side. Every quarter, uh, they have the Passport Weekend where a lot of small wineries like ours that aren't normally open are open. So you get to go to these really cool places. And you can buy like an annual pass for like 50 bucks. It's good for two years. You can go to the wineries anytime they're open and get one taste of every single one. So like 50 bucks, 50 wow. wineries, dollar per tasting, incredible wine. You know, I always joke that real estate agents in Santa Cruz or anybody around there should just give it out when you buy a house because <laughs> it's like the best investment ever. But we're open on the 21st, so come see that. But also buy one of those passes if you live there. Everyone goes north to Napa, and it's all nice and what, and your $20 tasting. But come to the mountains. It's beautiful. You can go to the ocean. You can do that. And you can get a bottle of McHenry. K&L used to carry it, but they don't have it in stock right now, so I'm sorry. No worries at all. I look forward to checking that out. Uh, well, so that wraps things up. And I'd really like to thank you so much for your time today and, and sharing your story with us. This has been Ian McHenry on the Venture Forth podcast. And we're definitely going to get this out before the 21st. <laughs> Perfect. Thanks so much, Jeff. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe to the Venture Forth podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. You can also follow at Venture Forth Pod on Twitter for our latest updates. As always, I'm your host, Joe Mahavutivani, and thank you for listening to the Venture Forth podcast.